take two. Get the line here. You want to just flip it over and start fresh? Well, I hate wasting tape. Yeah, well, it's better than losing something, yeah. I find. Tape is cheap compared to... Right, that's what I tell my students about film. Yeah. So why don't I be consistent? Huh? Well, there's no. Uh, all right. Um, Tim, what's the other side of uh, October 30th? 30th, I think. 30th. Well, okay, I'm going to go on a little bit about Al House and the New York Times. Yeah, we had you hanging around the newsroom. Right, at the agency. Right. And uh, I was telling you what syndicated photographs were about. So what you did was you went out and photographed what you thought was the important news event <clears throat> around Detroit that day, whether it was a baseball thing, or maybe it was a fire, or murder, or whatever the hell it was. And then you came back and instantly developed the thing, and then immediately knocked out 48 or 50 or 60 prints, which you then washed for maybe three minutes to get the surface hypo off, and dried them very rapidly, and stuck them in the envelope and rushed them over to the post office, and off they went. Well, I can't remember the exact time periods, but on several summers, I then took over Al Hout's job while he went on a vacation. Mm, like for a two, three week period? Yeah, or a month. And I would help him also when there were a couple of things, different things to cover. He was a very sweet, sort of short man, um, Jewish and very warm, and all the other newspaper photographers liked him, kidded him a little bit because he was from Chicago. So what was his actual responsibility? What was his job specifically? He was head of the Bureau, New York Times, Wide World Bureau. So did he pick the picture that day that would be the, oh, yeah. those pictures that would go out? Oh, yeah. And different or if he wasn't there, I did. Did he have a staff? Oh, the other thing that was done is if... There were, see, there were reason they were right next to the, new, the free press, Detroit free press, was they frequently picked up negatives. He frequently picked up negatives. They would cover something mm -hmm. that he didn't cover, and so they didn't mind. He borrowed the negative, and they would just syndicate it. Now, the other thing that happened, and you can check this back, I can't repeat, but it is a date. Um, I can't exactly remember how it happened, but I had the first portable wire photo machine in the United States in my bedroom on Taylor Avenue for a while. I've when, seen a reference to that, yeah. When the um, Chicago Sun start, started, and I'm glad we're getting this down because I'll probably forget his name, but other people know it. His name was Sid Mautner, was the photo editor. Sid Mautner, M-A-U-T-N-E-R, I believe that was his name. Very well-known guy. And he wanted me to cover, transmit, uh, pick up from the free press any photographs of any merit to the sun. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was sort of experimental, and the damn transmission was always interrupted by operators. He had to get a line cleared, and right in the middle of the transmission, which took about seven minutes, he, some operators said, is your line clear? Thus ruining the transmission. There's no way, so you, you know, you told them to stay off and whatnot. And you, that was interesting because you had to make a particular kind of print, one which was totally without any blacks or whites. And 
so I learned a great deal making these offbeat prints. Mm -hmm. See, the reason for that was that when it got transmitted to the other end, it was too, it became a, uh, the contrast was brought back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you had to compress it so it could... Right, so every detail would get transmitted. Yeah. Now, wasn't that after you were in Chicago at the new Bauhaus, the, the wire machine? Well, I don't remember. Because I, I think seen, so. Yeah, I think I so. I got another thing here, he said, yeah. pulling it out of his bag of tricks, that is similar to that one I'll show you. This is the bulletin of the Photographic Guild of Detroit from February 42. Yeah. And I'll give it to you. That's why I was saying, I'm not sure, of, you know, where And these... in here, you, you are nominated to the Hall of Fame, the, the Photographic Guild Hall of Fame, and there's a reference to the wire machine in your bedroom. Oh, really? uh, and there's a reference to your photograph right of assembly. Which means it's uh, yeah, this be, is much later. Yeah. So that's later. Yeah, this is much later. Yes, this was. I got both of these from Mars Worst. Oh, Our really? Book. Well, I'm glad somebody kept it. See, this photograph is a very romantic photograph taken with a, I think a. Well, four by five or an eight ten by this young man Ray Cooper, who was an illustrative photographer. And we were friends. I had a lot of friends. By that time, you know, in. Uh, photographic circles. Photographic circles. Because I was a lively fellow and appreciated what they were doing, eager. And, uh, well, that's interesting, you see, because they say we nominate our own private Hall of Fame, Arthur Siegel, because he is the most important influence of photography today. Because he has succeeded in discrediting hordes of mistaken conceptions, faulty ad approaches, and mistaken attitudes in photography, and has succeeded in teaching all those who will listen, and some will not. <laughs> what photography is. Well, that's interesting, you see, because that's what I've been talking about, the use of glossy paper, the use of sharpness, the manipulation of light, the control mm -hmm. of total scale. Uh, it was, a lot of people uh, were kind of upset by me, I think, mm -hmm. the older people, the conservative people, uh, but a lot of them shifted. You know, this man here, Spedden, was an elderly man that worked in the owned an advertising agent, so it was Haggerty, and I can't remember Bruckner. How about the Serotoni brothers? <laughs> oh, yes, I influenced them very much. They well, who were they? Oh, they were two photographers, two brothers, who started out, and I don't think they were ever in my class, but they certainly were influenced by my camera club activities, and... I used to go sailing with them. They owned a boat. And they became photographers for Chrysler Motor Car Company. They were the photographers for Chrysler Motor Car Company. In-house or as an agency? In-house. And uh, I haven't heard that name. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Uh, that's funny. Uh, yes, they were very influenced by me. And uh, like me and... For instance, the use of the small camera, I was one of the pushers, but that was more, I mean, guys like Lionel Berryhill. And we had quite an active little group of people using 35 and trying to make different kinds of pictures, even though some, of the, some people try to make the same kind of pictures you make with an 8x10. We tried to Try anything. open up, yeah. At one point, and I can't remember this, it must have been in the late 30s again, uh, I did a lot of fashion photographs for the Women's City Club. And I used 35 millimeter and I did things like girls lying in the grass with the dandelions 
all over. Mm -hmm. all over. What were these used for? For their magazine. They had a little magazine, yeah. Hmm. But that was nobody was doing anything like that, to my knowledge. I mean, everything. What you have to remember at that time was the hot emphasis on. Well, Steichen and Heineken Hewn and Horst and uh, a lot of uh, eight by ten pictures. Uh, I just remember the name the guy that died, Lucia Nelson. Very interesting photographer. Lucia Nelson, N-E-L-S-N, who they all were very influenced by Steichen. Steichen was the predominant influence. Mm -hmm. That's what everybody gets it all screwed up. During the 20s, the photographers in the United States were three in number. And they weren't Weston, they were Charles Sheeler, who's since practically disappeared as a photographer, Steichen, and Stieglitz. And it's interesting, you know, what's happening. Well, that's another story. Yeah, we can go into that. Comment on that later. Uh, here, Marinus, he was, I helped him a great deal, and Crows was very much affected by me, I now, would say. Let's talk a little about Harvey Crows, because I'm just personally interested in him yeah, as well. Yeah. What was he doing then? Was he uh, working as a photographer then? Now, Harvey Crows, if my memory serves me, and you're kind of lucky it's functioning this accurately, was in the recreation department of the Detroit Public something. Oh, yeah. Now, I guess, I guess Ed Worst said something about that. That he worked for the Parks and Recreation. Right, and then through the camera club and getting interested, he finally got a job at Cranbrook. That was his, that was his way out of the Parks and Recreation. Yeah, it's like his first photo job. I think so. And he stayed there all his working yeah. life. I mean, I'd be wrong about that. Uh, you know, he may have had something interim, but mm -hmm. and there, I that's a little confused. There were some people teaching, again. Uh, I had very close connections with Cranbrook and since very early and for a long time uh, I was a friend Charlie Eames I got him, this is later mm -hmm. I got him his real first job for Evans products bending, making splints for large numbers because well that's later, that's during the war years But I photographed, for instance, uh, Elio Saarinen's, a lot of his models, mm -hmm. and then later, and Arrow was still a child, frankly. Mm -hmm. And later I worked for Arrow. And I, you know, I did pictures for Khan. In fact, now, Harvey Crows, at some point, maybe after you did it, or maybe before, um, went to the new Bauhaus or the School of Design. Is that correct? Does that sound right? I think so. I think so. There are I pictures think... of Harvey's in one of Maholi's books as yeah. a student picture. Yeah. I think Harvey, after, much later, see, I was there the first year. Right, yeah, the so second he, semester. He was year. not there. So it would have had to be. So it was later, and I would have talked to him, he would have talked to me, and I would have certainly said, you know, it's an exciting place uh, just to. Your mind. And Harvey yeah. Crows also mentioned to me at one time, in reference to this. Where is Harvey now? You said he's somewhere in northern Michigan. He has a cottage that was a summer place, and now he's he's living up there. Of course, you know his son is in Kenya. You know, in fact, there was a television. My son was just in Kenya. Really? Well, there was a television program about him. He's a he's a I don't know whatever you call it, forest ranger or something. Oh, that's so damn funny. I wish I knew. You know, married to a German woman. 
And uh, and I guess Harvey was over there. To you visit know him. Harvey. Yeah, I mean, he's enormous. Or was. Yeah, oh, that last time I saw him, <laughs> real yeah. portly. Well, Harvey was a very nice person. Uh, he was not uh, greatly gifted, in my view. Uh, he was a pictorialist, but he was very nice. You know, and he nice, good teacher. Um, but he said to me, and this is getting a little bit ahead of our story, yeah. um, but this, you know, visit of Ansel Adams to Detroit. Yeah. Um, he remarked that he thought that the, one of the talks that, that Adams actually gave was actually given at an auditorium out at Cranbrook School or Kingswood School or somewhere out in that vicinity, which amazed me, just having you know attended the school. Um, I guess what, Ansel was in town for a couple of days or a yeah, week or something. I was responsible for bringing Ansel in. Uh -huh. I wanted, at that point, you know, Ansel was very important in terms of the total technique. You see, how to make a good photograph, which was already out a couple of years, and that was... Making a photograph, his yeah, book. making a photograph, and that, you know, he used... The reproductions look like glossy prints. They're probably the best reproductions nice for a long time. And uh, so I worked to bring Ansel to the, I guess it was the Fulham Guild. Yeah, because Izzy Berger was the president when Ansel came. Right, and Izzy Berger was very, you know, real tough, hardworking, smart Jewish lawyer. So he made things move. And that's where Harry first encountered yes. Ansel Adams, right. you see, for whom he, you know, gives all the credit, which is all bullshit because. Harry already knew about Ansel and knew about Stieglitz, you know, and I will keep repeating this. He'd already known, you know, about Stieglitz. The, well, that's another total story. But yeah. I just noticed here Harry Callan is mentioned here. Yeah. There's a there's a photograph, if you flip through that, of a it's in a Xerox, it's almost unintelligible. But Margaret uh, Worst has written that one of the people in the audience is Todd Webb, and one of them is Harry Callahan. Yeah, well, they were friends. I discovered Harry and Todd at the Chrysler Camera Club Export Division, where I went to do a print demonstration. The members would bring any negative that they wanted to bring, and we just put some red lights around in a large room and set up some trays near a sink, and I just made beautiful prints, because at that time I could just look at a negative and print. Hmm. Now, yeah, and this was, would have been around that's 39, where, 40. Yeah, that's where, uh, and then we became friends. I kind of liked their pictures, and we began meeting. You know, and I began to educate them. They were totally naive. They didn't know from zoo. photographic activity is taking place during your school days, how are you feeling about sociology? Are you questioning it? Are you just sort of taking it in stride? I just I take and read and do what I want to uh, do. Uh, that becomes a very interesting eye-opener. It's just like my reading. I keep ready reading fiction. Was there any particular relationship in your mind at the time between the schoolwork and all the photo jobs you were starting to get? No. Because uh, I know that in one of the things you've written quite a bit later, you refer to all the illustrated books that came out that were dealing with sociological issues yeah, in right. the thirties while right. you were in school. Tradition, right. right. Um, you know, American Procession and, and 
various other books. Yeah, that's a good article. Yeah, I was just reading it the other day, and um, I forget what. You know why I wrote that, or how that happened? No, Stryker was asked to write that, and then he told them I should write it. <laughs> Stryker really was got him out of it real good. And yeah, <laughs> and this guy, you see, Shershell, and they misspelled. No, that's right. Uh, lectures on news photography. I knew Frank Shershell, you see. Uh, way back in the 30s from the Milwaukee Journal. He gave this program on Now on someone like Shell, how would you have actually met him? Did you travel that much? I traveled quite a bit. While you were still in school, as much as you could? No, this is later. Summer? This is later. This is later. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's later. But that, you know, in my new vision and photography seminar, uh, yeah, Shell was one of the participants. We were pretty good friends. Well, were you directly aware of these books that you later mentioned in that article? Like, I got a list here from that article, A Picture of America in 1932. Yes. Did you see those when they came out? I mean, at the library or whatever? Yes. Uh, Metropolis? Some of, some of them. I haven't mentioned the whole political scene, of which, again, I was quite interested in. This was the period, you know, a little bit... This was the whole period of the Depression. I actually worked for the UAW, for instance, making pictures for them help them set up their photography department. I can't remember the photographer's name. Um, I was watched very carefully the fight between the communists and the non-communists as to who would control the UAW. And Richard Frankenstein, the first president of the UAW, was one class ahead of me at Central High School. And he was part of the communist, he was a communist front. That's why I have to laugh at this woman What's her name? Marsha Tucker. Oh. Ann Tucker. Who, Ann Tucker. Ann Tucker. talks about, uh, you know, that the, uh, the photo, league. photo League was not a communist front. I mean, she doesn't know what the hell she's talking about, and she totally exaggerates its influence. Anyway. Well, yeah, of course, she may even be saying that so she doesn't panic on the people she talked to are probably still paranoid. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway. Yeah. But, well, what, what was the... Anyway, that... See, I knew friends, I had friends who worked, oh God, it's so complicated. Uh, take, two take of my deep friends, <laughs> yeah, were marvelous people. One name was Henry Schumann, who later was the publisher of Schumann Books in New York. The other friend in, who had shared an office with him was John Malcolm Brennan, the poet. Brennan? Brennan. B-R-I-N-N. -N. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't remember. He's the one that wrote the book on uh, Dylan Thomas's trip across the United States. Mm. And he edited a little magazine, I think it was called Signatures. Henry Schumann was a very wealthy young man whose father owned a manufacturing parts plant somewhere around Detroit. Went to Michigan, came back, was interested in rare books. And during the Depression, specialized in scientific and rare books, including, among other things, photography, and issued catalogs and sold by mail primarily, excepting to some of the rich collectors around Detroit. Even during the Depression, you see, there's traffic went on, just like the Southworth and Hawes things were sold by the Boston Book. Uh, there were still people buying that kind of there stuff. There were people buying all the time. Mm -hmm. So. Henry, it's all, well, the, to go in it would take too complicated, uh, it's very complicated. Henry Schumann's wife was married to Tom Brandon, 
Is that name mean anything? Ever hear of Brand Films? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Brand Films was the firm that got together all the avant-garde and left and uh, other kinds of non-commercial films and also built up, began to build up a distribution of art films. Tom Brandon's wife was, I think, Henry Schumann's sister. I, Henry Schumann finally, after a number of years, moved to New York and you know, had the Schumann uh, book publishing. They were involved in Detroit in the group theater productions. And when I would go to New York on occasion with Henry and his wife or meet them there or something, and I saw Clifford Odette's, you know, and Shaw and uh, all the leftist uh, writers that later were indicted, you know, by the House on American Committees. But at that time, if you were any kind of an intellectual, you had communist friends. It was impossible to be an intellectual without knowing them. Now, whether you agree with them, that was a different story. I did not agree with them, politically and aesthetically, although I was very taken by Godet's, you know, seeing things like waiting for a little lefty and, and uh, watching the whole thing. And that was also connected to see there are all kinds of political acts connected with the WPA art program. Uh, in Detroit in the 30s, you know, maybe 35 or 36, I was photographing, making photographs for the WPA project, not for them uh, being on the WPA, but just photographing for them, doing jobs, because Charles Pollock was head of the WPA art project in Detroit, Jackson's brother. And I still have a, you know, a lithograph somewhere of little Benton, Charles Benton like. Is it Charles Benton? Thomas. Thomas Benton. I have a friend named Charles Benton. Charles Benton's the head of Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> and Films Incorporated. Different Benton. Yeah. Well, it's, he's the son of Benton, the guy that, uh, you know. That Pollock studied with. No, no, no. Oh, no. Of the Encyclopedia Britannica, Benton, the guy that bought it. This is the different yeah. Bentons I was referring yeah, to. Yeah, <laughs> I'm condensing. See, Charles Benton. Man. But you you have a Pollock lithograph that's in the manner of during the period he was working with Benton. Yeah. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. They both naturally later become totally abstract. And he taught so Charles Thomas Pollock taught in Michigan State for many years. Oh God. Anyway, during the Depression years, there were a lot of political things going on. And the UAW probably would not have been organized without the communists getting their heads smashed. They were the ones that went out, you know, on that overpass. The battle, the overpass. And that directly encountered the terrifically vile Harry Bennett Harry and his Bennett. gangsters, who was, you know, everybody knew it in Detroit. I mean, Harry Bennett, and my, my uncle's name is Harry Bennett, <laughs> the doctor that died a number of years ago, had the same name. Harry Bennett used to get a percentage on every, I can't remember whether it was every spark, I think it was every spark plug, he got about an eighth of a cent that went into the Ford Motor Company. It was a racket. And, Ford's uh, private little gangsters, what he meant. Yes. Well, it was a real army. I mean, it was very dangerous to go there. I went there a number of times to photograph. You know, 
he was a gangster, period. And Henry Ford was uh, kind of a son of a bitch, too. You know, he was anti-Semitic. Oh, right, yeah. Years. The paper in Dearborn that he yeah, supported. Yeah, Dearborn Independent, a guy named Cameron, uh, you know, issued it. And he was a cause of great discomfiture in the Jewish community in the world. I mean, he reprinted the prodigal's design, you know, it's a total forgery made up. Anyway, so you, what you have to remember is that the political situation in the United States was okay to be a communist until about 1935 or 6 when the Dewey, if I remember correctly, Dewey Commission went to the Soviet and found how terrible it was. Now, I myself, young, but uh, still, you know, trying to understand politically, I was not in favor of, of uh, communism for me. I could see the corruption of the czars and everything and they would, thought it would, you know, it was probably a good idea there. But I certainly was not excited about it in the United States, right. particularly having read a lot of Marxist aesthetics. Yeah. Which I react to very violently as being a pile of shit. Uh -huh. If you look at Russian art today, you see... Say it again. I say if you look at Russian art today, Soviet art today, yes. the socialism Well, but good. earlier, you see, in the early 20s, Russian art was very avant-garde. Right, and they managed to kill that completely. Right. And then, you know, when they managed to kill that very much and stultify the whole revolution. I mean, the whole thing can be traced in its art. Anyway, that ferment was also going on, see. So, uh, Henry went to New York, I don't know how successful he was as a publisher, but Tom Brandon, who started out, you know, distributing all these avant-garde and artistic films, came quite tough. I used to see him all the time in New York. He sold his film business out for millions of dollars. <laughs> What I'm trying to say is life is funny. Don't uh, always think you can predict what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, that's just uh, apropos of that. That's a funny aside. That reminds me of a thing I was reading about someone, a writer who works for Norman Lear, just recently, suggesting that they do a situation comedy about a bunch of uh, rabid socialist millionaires who are... <laughs> meet informally at lunch to talk about tax shelters. <laughs> and he suggested, he said, and no one laughed. <laughs> well, no, you see, if you, you would not laugh if you were smart, because traditionally all revolutions are produced by wealthy, upper-class, and rich people. The, the so-called downtrodden, they have dumb things, peasant revolts, which are easily squashed. But to manipulate, you know, governmental system requires training exactly the same kind or better training uh -huh. than what you're trying to remove. So all revolutions are never caused by the poor. They're caused by people who are not poor. Check me out over the years, you'll see that that's quite true. Um, so there was a, I'm just saying, giving you a slight touch of what the political atmosphere was and the intellectual modes. We were saying something about WPA too. Yeah, well the WPA was going on and all over, New York being the most powerful, Chicago probably the next, and uh, Detroit a little bit. And there were a lot of people that were sculptors and painters and, and wasn't there it was terrible stuff. Rivera's mural was painted around 38, 37, I think. Yeah, there. 
and there was a tremendous stir and aggravation and everybody thought they were being done in. And actually, if you'll recall, somewhere along the line there, uh, Rivera painted a mural that was whitewashed over for the Rockefeller Right, in Rockefeller Center. Rockefeller Center. Yeah. That was after Detroit, I think he got. That had happened before, I don't think he would have painted in Detroit. Yeah. So there were all those kind of things going on. Well, maybe... No, I did not have, in this period, really any, all along, any direct people to talk to. I talked to Stieglitz, I kept going to New York, and I, Stieglitz wouldn't have known my name, because he would talk to everybody. I went there constantly, and uh, I mean, whenever I could. And I used to go to New York quite frequently. And Ed Anthony and I actually went there and lived there for a summer, somewhere on Bleecker Street. Now, would that have been a summer after you'd been at the New Bond House? Or maybe before, while you were still at Wayne? I think it might have been before. But maybe the one between Wayne and the New Bond House? After you graduated? I don't know. Would have been be in any event. Would have been before the war in Europe had started. Oh yes, oh yes. So that's the fall of '39. Yeah. Oh yes. So it's probably '37, '38, '39, roughly. I can't see if we can pin down when I did these soap sculpture things. That would give us one more okay, well, solid date, because I don't know when that occurred. Yeah. I might be able to get on the phone tomorrow and find something. I was going to say, call New York. Just for that. Might be interesting. Anyway, uh, the atmosphere, political atmosphere. I am working, you know, as a photojournalist. I'm doing my own work, or what I've always called my own work. Those pictures that I have no intention of selling. Mm -hmm. See, nobody ever sold in terms of print. I never knew anybody that sold a print. In that market idea of the well, print. Well, yeah. anyway, I mean, I. I didn't, uh, oh, maybe my first knowledge of somebody selling print was from Stieglitz. But they were so expensive, nobody bought them. You know, they were talking about limited editions. I think the Stieglitzes, you know, you'd make a couple prints and that would be that. Yeah. And I knew Paul Strand, and I mean, at that point, Paul, his prints have always been expensive because Paul had an independent income. Stieglitz had an independent income. They weren't working photographers like I was. Um, they weren't working photographers like I was. Um, I don't think at this period I was very aware of Weston. I may have read some articles in the magazine that was sort of the battling point uh, and full of a lot of garbage. Uh, was camera craft, which the famous series of letters between Mortensen and uh, well, even before that, I think that would that was Weston wrote some articles. You see, mm -hmm. you know, explaining a rather straight classic position. Mortensen, you see, is quite interesting. I mean, he came on. He appeals to all the retrogressive tendencies of the social class which he was dealing with. Uh, that were in the camera club, you see. Mm -hmm. These people were not in the slightest knowledgeable about what was happening in modern music, art, dance, or anything. They were very, really quite stuck 
in the same things that were affecting photography in 1850, namely Rubens, Carvaggio, and that kind of thing. And yeah. the whole idea of manipulating the print, which were getting replay, incidentally, and that's why, you know, Jack asked, like, A.D. Coleman's uh, statements uh, that, uh, you know, Mortensen's really deliberately left out of the uh, history of photography by Newell. That's right. That was an act of judgment that this was crap. <laughs> yeah. The, I had a very interesting um, remark about uh, that deals with Mortensen and kind of relates to this is a little later period, but um, where a guy was saying that one of the things that Mortensen appealed to in little seminars that he used to give, and they would be, you know, like Dennis would come, you know, it was, it was a combination of, you know, looking at the nude model. Right, that was one of the real reasons for blowing the camera clubs frequently. Right. That you got the photograph of a nude model. That was always the most popular lecture of the year, yeah. was when somebody had a nude model. And then this veneer of old-fashioned art, or accepted art, in quotes, um, you know, and that Mortensen was able to really sell that as an idea, as an attraction, up to, you know, and this guy was contending roughly the war, and at that point there's a watershed where what begins to sell then is clothing yourself in a kind of a technical thing in his own system, and Ansel Adams begins to have an ascendancy there, and his workshops begin to be the place that everybody's I going. Agree with you that. know, and that seemed like a very good characterization of the two appeals. Yeah, but, but that had already started, you see, earlier, and uh, the Mortensen thing was really dreadful and still is, in my view. Uh -huh. You know, and I, 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 I'm sad that somebody that seems to be bright, like Coleman, comes up. With the, he's an agent provocateur there. He's trying to get attention himself. Because if he really looked at those Mortensons, they are dreadful. Yeah, let's drop Mortensen and let me go back and ask one question. Um, you said you read Camera Craft. Was that a magazine you would have seen generally? Yeah. I other... started reading American Photography and Camera Craft and read those all along. Quite faithfully uh, whenever yeah. you read them. Yeah, that was... Uh, and then I... U.S. Camera when it started? U.S. camera when it started, you know, that was a much more modern, contemporary kind of mm -hmm. thing. And the first U.S. cameras were terrific. Yeah, I've been I think going I through still them. have them. There are also some on the uh, you know commercial side. Eastman Kodak published some very large uh, things for professional photographers. Studio light or that type of thing. That type of thing, but better. Better than today's. Yeah, large, beautifully printed. And they discontinued after about 12. You know why? Because everybody can make beautiful illustrative photographs if they read those books, hmm. those pamphlets. I have some. Hmm. Uh, they're, they were very good, but they dealt with light and how, you know, they were really modern. Mm -hmm. And see, there, I, again, I forgot. In this period also, there were people like Valentino Sara, the illustrator. Now, he was there. a Detroit person originally, wasn't he? I've forgotten that. He was in Chicago, and I know him. I came and saw him once in a while. Mm. Very you know, high-energy Italian guy who wanted to make a lot of money, and uh, you see was very mixed up, you know, aesthetically. And there were, oh, there was another one, Lajar and A. Hilliard. Oh, yes. See, you can find pictures of both of them, religious things done in the style of Raphael. There's a very funny series of pictures that actually uh, Andy Eskin brought to my attention that are in the Sipley collection oh, really? by Hiller that are called The History of Medicine. 
And there, you know, the patient is invariably uh, a young woman with no well, shirt. They're exactly, they're exactly like my bridges, the two ways of life. Or you mean, uh, you don't mean my bridge, you mean uh, uh, Rylander. Rylander. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, they're a little. They're very much like that. <laughs> well, only they're 100 years later and they ought to know better. I know, but they see those things were very well thought of. Oh, yeah, apparently. I mean, paid enormous sums of money. He was a very hot number over there for a while, I guess. He was oh, a long time. Long time. His son teaches in Buffalo. I think I'm going to go talk to him just for the heck of it, see what he can say. Because well, of... he was a very interesting guy. He was a good friend of Steichen's. And what was the most biggest irony of all of that period of photography was Steichen telling Valentina uh, Sara uh, that he ought to quit doing that commercial stuff and do some you know, art photography. <laughs> the reason I'm laughing is Steichen did commercial photography all the time. Right. So <laughs> you're getting pretty good there. Why don't you quit and let me do it? Huh. Okay. Um, well, I to think... To sum up, during this period, there were a great number of influences. Depression, family uh, you know, economic situation, uh, new friends of all kinds from the arts, and then that Wayne exploding, uh, you know, my intellectual horizons. But when I was at Wayne, it was very important. I used to take pictures for the, uh, the uh, weekly, and then I think it was the last year, a fellow named Dan Miller, uh, and myself. Dan Miller was an Irishman. And I can't remember whether it was 36 or 37. The beer book, which was called The Griffin, uh, the administration wanted to give it up because it was losing money. So Dan and I made them a proposition that we would take it over, but only on the basis that if we made money, we could keep it. Hmm. Well, Dan later went in the advertising business, and I knew something about journalism way beyond anything that anybody at that school knew. And we turned out a terrific um, yearbook. In fact, we did it several times. And the way we financed it was to get subscriptions to the yearbook beforehand. So that we knew beforehand that we were okay. And we went out and sold ads and everything. And it was a terrific success. We both made, for that time, I don't know, quite a bit of money. It's worth your time to do it. Oh, so yeah. This, the first one would have been the year you were a senior? Or the he year may you have been a junior. Even. I mean, Dan worked for the paper and I was taking pictures and we, the thing was going to die, so we just took over. Mm -hmm. Also, for that weekly, geez, I don't remember the name of that paper. I'm going to have to spend a long time in Detroit. <laughs> uh, I wrote motion pictures, some motion picture reviews, I remember. For the weekly? Yeah. Not too long, but there were a number of them. Hmm. Um, and that was quite early. I think that could have been 35. If you'll notice when we go through the library, I have, I would say, most of the important books in, in English um, motion picture. Uh, I was very interested in motion picture, not particularly making it. Although I did later make, you know, a film, I mentioned. Um, but the whole idea of film interested me, and I used to 
I had a friend in Detroit by the name of Mark Pokemper. Mark, is that his name? Pokemper, he's a furrier. Yeah. Who still probably speaks with a Russian accent. Mm -hmm. And Jules would know his address. Mm -hmm. He's probably still alive. He made a lot of money in the fur business. And he was a friend of Henry Schumann and would have some recollections. And we used to go to New York just to see movies. I mean, we'd get up in the morning, get data, you know, and start seeing movies at 9 o'clock. And go and see, oh, movies, you know, one in the morning and maybe two in the afternoon, one at night. Hmm. I mean, we were really excited about it. And there were movies there we couldn't see in Detroit. Still are. That's right. <laughs> if you want to, if you're interested in movies, go to New York and, you know, a year's time you see more movies than you'll ever see here. Yeah. Uh, using all the resources. Anyway, that was an, and somebody like Poe Kempner, you see, was also tied into these group theater interests and that kind of thing. And then there were, oh, there was a doctor, for instance, who examined the volunteers for this Lincoln Brigade in Detroit. And it was all mixed up. Knew a lot of musicians, used to listen to jazz. First time I encountered marijuana was in a black whorehouse where we went and drank beer in order to listen to jazz. And they smoked uh, marijuana. That, that, I'm sure that was somewhere in 32 or 33. In Detroit? Yeah. And then I used to, oh, even in the, in the 20s, in my childhood, before when we were still living on Canfield or Alexandria, I remember listening to jazz as a young kid. And then later on going down to... Uh, on the radio, you mean, like? Or? No, no. Blacks playing. See, the, well, jazz was not distributed in the white community. It was a black thing. And, I mean, if you read anything about the history of jazz, you know, it was a long time before whites got into the whole jazz stream. And that's always been an interest. And we used to go down to what was then called Paradise Valley, I don't know what they call it now, the black community on Hastings, mm. where there were jazz joints. And it was perfectly safe, or so we thought. <laughs> well, we never encountered anything. It's perfectly safe from your experience. Huh? Yeah. Uh, and we would, do, you know, drink and listen to... I, I'd heard Billie Holiday long before she was famous. Mm. And then later on, I... You know, I actually was friendly with, used to drink with Lead Belly. So what you're beginning to get here is a picture of a guy that's fairly complex, who's not, who's nuts about photography, but not limited to photography, who yeah. is not pushing himself. It's really, it sounds crazy, but that wasn't the thing. Uh, I loved making photographs, but you were interested in a whole hell of a lot of other yeah, things. Yeah, including photography. But I didn't cut it down to see and just force you know, that one issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, when I got something accomplished, I just got bored of it. Uh, oh. And I loved teaching. Very early I started to teach. Just a, like on an informal basis initially. Yeah and then very quickly on a formal basis. 
before I came to the new Baos, you know, I taught this this course at Wayne. Yeah, I think maybe what we ought to do right now is take a little break and then talk about the new Baos. Maybe I don't want to stretch my leg here a little. Oh, all right. Because this is a overwhelming amount of interesting material. Oh, I don't know. You know. Yeah. Of course, the ephemera. Right. The, uh, yes, I love that ephemera too. <laughs> you can drown yourself in ephemera. Yeah. Um, well, I have a question actually in relation to this whole context of Detroit and all these people you're mentioning is um, was there anything going on that you were tied up with or interested in at the Detroit Institute of Art at that time? Or did you know anybody there? Or did you ever do a commercial job for the art museum in any way? No, but I had friends there. I was interested in art. And uh, I knew Dr. Valentiner, the head of it. But I was very young. Uh, some of my friends knew him, older friends knew him. Uh, I used to go to the art institute and look at the pictures. I never had any direct connection with them. Uh, in this period of school, though, I had a direct connection with the, the Toledo Art Museum. I actually did a job for them, produced a booklet for them in their, for their art school. Oh, for the museum, they had a museum school? Uh -huh. for the museum school. What was the booklet about? About our education. And uh, there was a wonderful woman who was teaching then, and then I think went into, uh, was head of the Toledo public school art education, by the name of Mary Ryan. And I kind of... Mary Ryan. I kind of loved her. And we used to go to these conventions. And there was a friend of mine, I had a friend there, who graduated at Columbia and taught at the school, later became a professor at Ohio State. Um, his name was Manuel Barkin, B-A-R-K-A-N. I haven't said that for a long time. I believe he's dead now. And you're really coming up with these names. Well, it's amazing. Uh, his name was Manuel Barkin, and then there was Mary Ryan. We'd meet at these conventions once the, every year. The Art Education and, Association? Yeah, or the Progressive, Edu Progressive Education Association. Because Jane was very involved in that. We were sort of her, her star pupils. Uh-huh. Um, and she had friends. You know, at Columbia and that kind of thing. Did you ever get roped into doing a panel on photography and art education at one of these conferences or anything? No, no, you no. I gave it. that talk. That was the one that was published? Yeah. Uh, but we would go and drink and have fun. <laughs> and Matt Barkin taught at the Toledo Museum Art School, and then he went to Ohio State. And Mary Ryan, I think, is still in Toledo, if she's still alive. Wonderful woman. Oh, she used to write me all. Was she a friend of James? Incidentally, you must know about my neuroticism. I uh, don't haven't written letters. That's why there's no trace of me, mm. particularly. Have you received them and kept them? I've received them and I don't haven't kept particularly. But that all had to do with my mother when I was at the new Bauhaus. Mm -hmm. My mother was discovered to have a brain tumor. Mm on her optic nerve. And she, I was at the new Bios, and I just kind of going there. And she had to have an operation, which she had, a guy named, I think it was Pete, I can't remember. And at that time they didn't use blood 
they gave some artificial kind of liquid substitute. And I never wrote my mother a letter. And I think that was a very important part of my life. I felt guilty ever since. Mm. See, if you didn't write to her, you certainly didn't write. I didn't write to her because I was so upset. I couldn't deal with the situation. I loved my mother very much. And she always was wonderful to me. But I think that had to, that's what it had to do. I can rationalize it too, that later on, you know, I didn't want to write anybody because it took so much time and all that. Right. But uh, that's not true. The real reason was that I felt a tremendous sense of guilt. Are you kind of saying that it's like if you couldn't have written to her then, and you certainly can't write to somebody right. else later? Right. It wasn't yeah. very important. But I, and also, I used to not be a very good speaker. I mean, I really, it was a hard thing for me to learn. The, you know, teach. Were you just nervous or...? No, I was sort of withdrawn and quiet. Unorganized, just withdrawn, just shy kind of in a, shy in a, as a speaker? Shy. Yeah, I, I would be aroused and during this camera club era, I certainly got aroused by what I thought was, you know, real jerky <laughs> statements. Yeah, the one thing that Izzy Berger and Edwards both finally, when I asked him to sort of synthesize the whole thing, the one thing that they really amounted to, they said, was that you were like the gadfly of the whole scene, that whatever anybody was doing, it wasn't usually good enough for your standards. And for some reason, people kept coming back, even though a lot and of people were irritated. Yeah. Right. That's right. And that, I think, has been consistent all along. I've been a gadfly to the whole damn photographic community, including the SPE. That's why a lot of people dislike, you know, have disliked me over the years, because I, one, I don't stand fools gladly, and two, I think there are you know, important things that are not the same as unimportant things. <laughs> yeah. you know, and I resent the politics of photography very much. Just as now I resent, you know, the kind of exploitation of photography by people who aren't in the slightest bit interested in photography or just discovered you can make a fast buck in it. It's just a commodity. Right, including those photographers. I think Ansel Adams is getting disgraceful, his behavior. Now maybe that's my, you know, that's sick on my part. Maybe you should make all the money you can. Well, that may be, but there might be how you should make it. Is that, that well, that's what I'm talking about. I don't mind. I mean, I've never had any objections to my making money or anybody else. But you know, on the one hand, he talks about all this truth and beauty, and the other, hand, you know, on the other hand, he's endorsing brown shoes. And when I Toyota or Datsun earlier, no, you see him with an ad for Hasselblad, and earlier I asked him. You know, many years ago, I never used a rollie or 35, and he said, well, because I don't like a belly button point of view. But when they gave him a Hasselblad, I see he used it. <laughs> and also, you know, he built a thing on top of his station wagon, which is hardly, you know, his eye level. He's been mixed up aesthetically all along. Yeah. Hmm. But he's very nice, you see, and very soothing to people. Yeah, and if you... Have him come and give a lecture. He and gives I his money for it. You know, he's a terrific piano player, drinker, friend. But I have disagreed very much with a lot of things that he said and done. And I may, you know, a lot of things indirectly. I've pushed people like him into the more modern stance. Did you, had you ever met him before he came to Detroit? Or was that when you first no, actually met him? that's where I first actually met him. You just felt he would be a good person to Absolutely. expose yourself yes. as well as other people? Oh, sure. Yeah. There's your tape recorder. I bet your tea is ready. Let's go. Ooh. Okay. This is uh, the end of Sunday session here. What's the date? What's the date? Halloween, 31st.
The 31st. Okay. November 31st. October. October. Oh, sorry, kill that. Stupid. I'm in no shape for anything, obviously. October 31st, 1977, third day interview by Jim McQuaid and Elaine King. We are about to enter, I guess, the new Bauhaus period. Yeah, the first question is, um, we have, we remarked, we, well, we were talking about a lot of different things that were going on with you in the commercial work yesterday. And to go back a little bit. Before um, I forget, because these names drop in and out of my mind. Sure. Write down Clark Dean. Clark Dean? In Minneapolis, yeah. And I got a letter today I meant to show it to you. And Peter Gold, who's also in Minneapolis. Right, I know Peter. Mm -hmm. Well, Peter was one of my students, fought a great deal with me, learned a great deal. You know, it's turned out quite well, I think. Clarence Dean? Clark Dean. Clark Dean? Yeah. What is, a, what is his? He's a motion picture maker and industrial studio and smart guy. He was way back, you see. What was his relationship? I mean, just a student. A student of yours in Detroit? Bachelor. No, no. There was a student of mine from Detroit up there for years, and I've lost track of him. I can't remember his name. His first name was Eugene something. He used to work at Ford Motor Company. can't remember what his last name was. Hmm. It's funny, you see, if you keep living a long time, and if you're like me, uh, you meet, and a lot of your people disappear. Now, if you're someone like Aaron, who has a little black book, I think Aaron has everybody's address in the United States that he ever Every met, night. or Paris, or Italy, mm. or what. Yeah. If you want to locate anybody, call Aaron. Hmm. Whereas with me, I one, I haven't written any letters you know, for a long time, and uh, it's a difference. I, I have some old friends that I've kept all the way along, but somehow, Again, it's an all-out thing. When I'm a friend, I'm a good friend. Or was when I had the energy. And it's like marriages to me. It takes a lot of energy to have a good relationship with anybody, man or woman or And there's a real limit to how many of those you have. That's right. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, this high business and bragging about who your friends, I've known so damn many people over the years. Yeah. And that has been interesting that one of the, uh, I really have known most of the outstanding photographers of, you know, our, my period. One time or another. One just time or another, right. Yeah. Well, most of the people, you know, if, if there's something that's going to happen, you run across them again or they find you again, you know. Right. If you're in the same field, you know, and of any quality at all, ultimately you run across either in a hostile way or in a loving way. <laughs> right. You know? That's true. Yeah, I, I can appreciate that. All right. Continue A, I'm sorry. Okay, no, fine. The um, You graduate from Wayne State. Yeah, I graduate in... 37. Spring of 37, right. Now, um, and in January of 38, we find you in Chicago. What happens in between? How did you first hear about the new violence? I mean, or what uh, was your... I was teaching a course at Wayne University. I was doing all those other things we were talking about, mm -hmm. full of journalism things, timing things, uh, liquor bottles with an 8x10, you know, 
just magnificent reproductions of the liquor bottles of liquor. Because there was Arrow, uh, uh, Arrow Distillery in Detroit. And did portraits, used, see again, this is one of the differences between Aaron and myself. I love camera equipment. Mm -hmm. And learn to use everything. And I, you know, very early had 35 millimeter, learned how to do beautiful things. But I also learned how to use an 8x10, 4 to 5 was natural in the journalistic mode. I had a Roly very early and used that. And they were all different tools to me. See, it was very much different than Ansel's point of view. That there was only essentially everything should be taken with an 11 by 14 way, or 1620 if Ansel had his way. And that's what leads to all of his static pictures, if you again, look at his entire offering, everything is static, with the exception of about six pictures. Mm -hmm. Five of them at uh, you know, Carmel the Sea, and one moving uh, windmill or something. And that's about it. And and that's extraordinary, whereas I was very taken with the idea of stopping motion, for instance. I took pictures of the thousandth of a second just to see, as Gary would say, what the photograph looked like. Mm -hmm. Because I couldn't see what I was photographing. That's the whole point, really. You know, what Gary always outrageously digs people, you know, in the fits of anger. He's a good showman. But essentially, you know, when I was taking pictures of thousands of seconds, I was doing them just to see what it looked like. Yeah. You've heard the great crack, maybe you were there, at Eastman House when Winogram was showing pictures in slide form and apparently Beaumont was nettled by the whole proceeding and finally couldn't contain himself and there was one that really offended him and he, he sort of shouted out of the audience, you know, something like, you know, well, kind of like uh, in a very negative tone of voice, like, how much time did it take you to make that picture? 30 years. And Winogrand, no, Winogrand said a 500th of a second. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Just, you know. Anyway. Yeah, oh. well, the opposite of that, you know. Is right. Is Which is 30 years. Yeah. That's true, too. Let me ask a question. Arthur, were you also still with the Board of Education? Or has that been terminated by 37?